Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. We are now in season four. Today, I'm joined by Liz, Megan, Elizabeth, and Erica. And we are going to talk about a recent trial that Liz and I just completed a couple of weeks ago. We learned many things. And even though we've both tried many cases, every time I try a case, there's still something I learned, something about the process, about the content. I always learn something. And we thought today, since we're a podcast of trial attorneys and haven't been in trial much in the last year and a half, that we would share some of the more interesting happenings that occurred during that trial. So just to lay a little bit of background, it was a medical malpractice matter that was tried for about two and a half weeks in a rural county in Missouri. The team here had spent two or three years working up the case, and it had a number of different machinations in that we had a number of different defendants. And part of the fun, really, of this job is to be able to be very flexible in what our theories are and against which defendants. So that was very fluid, even to the end before starting this case. But some of the highlights to talk about today included that it was an out of town, several hours away from St. Louis. And that brings additional stress and worry and logistics to try to get an out of town case tried. It was also multiple defendants. We had a number of settlement issues with prior defendants, but also what's known as a high-low agreement with other defendants. It was technically still during COVID, so we had masking and COVID protocols. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And let's start with the easy part, which didn't feel very easy at the time, but the idea of being out of town for a trial for an extended period of time. It was necessary to rent hotel rooms. We needed a what we call war room, which we ended up in just a regular bedroom. Because we are economically judicious around here, we, instead of renting the conference room, which was some kind of ridiculous $200 a day, we rented a regular bedroom and just put the mattress like against the wall. Had a couple of fold-out tables, yep. had them in a big square in the middle of the room, and we were all able to work around that and brainstorm and complete our work together. And I mean, look, it was clearly thrown together to try to be cost-efficient, but it worked out really well, I thought. It did. We were able to meet back in the, quote, war room after every trial day and could sit at our respective spots. It was hilarious. Everybody had an assigned seat, right? I mean, not technically assigned, but everyone sat in the same spot every night. And we ordered, I have to say, from the same restaurant almost every night because it just didn't let us down. It just didn't let us down. Let me just say, I would think you guys are psychopaths if every time you went into that room, you picked a new seat. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> like, what's happening? You got to be comfortable in the room. Absolutely. The room has to have beverages. The room have to have protein bars. Yeah. And we would all 
meet up after trial into the room and plan the next day and talk about the day that we had and any changes in strategy. So we would chit chat for a little while and then we would all just duck our heads and start working on what we needed to work on for the next day. It was incredibly efficient. And I will say that was one of the best trial experiences I've ever had until the very last minute when the judge read the verdict. But we're going to we're not going to dwell on that. It's not the important part That's of this story. That's not the important part. So logistically, the lesson, I suppose, is to make sure you know where you're going and to have steps in place to be able to work efficiently. Because if we didn't have that room and we weren't sure where we were going every night and weren't sure where we were getting our next meal, it really would have been disruptive. So kudos to our trial team. Very, very skilled and professional trial team that was able to put those things together for us to make us as efficient and effective as we were. Did you feel limited? I'm assuming that at the end of the night, you went back and you worked probably on laptops. Did you feel limited by that? I know I only have one trial under my belt and it was a short trial. So there was really only one day after trial that I wanted to work on, but I had a pretty significant amount of work I felt like I had to do after that first day. And I came back to the office and I was here for several hours after And I can't imagine feeling as on top of things if I would have just gone to a hotel room and had to work from a laptop. So to give you a bigger picture of our war room, we rented a full-size printer. And our paralegal had a couple of screens, access to the entire file electronically. I couldn't print from my tablet, but I could email her. And she was sitting literally three feet from me. So I would email my cross-examination outline for the next day to her and she would print it and I had it. Or if I needed another just one hour to be alone, because being alone sometimes is very important, go back to my room and finish the outline, email it to her. And it was on the table at seven o'clock the next morning when we were heading out to trial. So I hear you. I think that if we didn't have all of the accoutrements um, as of a regular office, such as a printer and good Wi-Fi, then it would be much more stressful. The one thing that I will add to that is I was doing a lot of the drafting from my laptop. That was sort of my role at trial was more reviewing documents and drafting any last minute motions that needed to be filed. And so working from a single laptop can be very difficult. So one way to try to ease that stress a little bit is to actually get one of those portable external monitors. Our paralegal had one. I borrowed it from her so I could work and it changed my world. Just being able to have two monitors set up in front of me as I worked made things so much easier and so much more efficient. So that is the one thing I will say. It's it's not the same as having your desktop, but it is something that will help you be more efficient and help ease some of that frustration of working on you know this tiny little laptop screen. So external monitor, get one. And also, as far as perspective on logistics for that trial, what is your perspective on trying a case out of town, meaning being with your trial team Monday through Friday and having that intense focus as opposed to coming back and forth from home if you're trying a case locally? As disruptive as it was to be away from home for the whole, you know, Sunday to Friday, it was met and exceeded by the idea of being together to bounce ideas off each other, to decompress from the day, to encourage each other for the next day, to deal with things that went wrong that day, to pat each other on the back, whatever needed to be done. It was so satisfying. Oddly. I would think so. It's a really weird thing to admit, 
because most of the time you think being out of town just sounds awful. But I did not lose my focus Mm -hmm. at home. I'm thinking about, do I need to do the laundry? Do I need to feed the cat? All the things that are in your life that are just routine that you have to do that are hard not to do that you want to try to get done before you walk out the door. And it really cleared the way to focus solely on this. And it did in the third week, it was getting to be a little much. But I mean, I have heard people who have said even when they're in trial in town, they get hotel rooms in order to have that focus on the case. I've never done that, but I can see why you would feel like that could be very beneficial. And mentioning the trial tech, the key is to have this relationship because when you're questioning a witness or giving a close or whatever your role or performance is that day, you want it to look effortless to the jury. And that includes having an outline with reference to the exhibits that you want pulled up. So I would draft my outline, but because our trial tech was there, when I emailed the outline to our paralegal to print it out, it also went to him. And then I was very specific. I want exhibit 14-2. He would follow me in my outline. So it's also very important to have that trial tech with you to be able to really look at them from across the room. Because we had one incident where something went up that wasn't quite redacted entirely. It went up. I knew what I was looking for. I literally looked across the room, gave him like the stink eye from hell, and it was get down in like one second. Like, I don't think the jury had any idea what had just been going on. And without having that experience and putting that together, that could have been a disaster. And the rest of us were all so jealous. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> you, like that that first week, I called you on Friday, and I'm like, what happened? What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> Cluby and Goose, like, what's going yeah. on? And it wasn't every moment wasn't great. Trust me, there were a couple of bumps in the road, but we were able to communicate and we all just were so excited to be back in trial, to be able to do this for our clients who were wonderful people who wanted their day in court. And it just reinforced this idea that what we do is important and it matters. Giving someone their day in court is a privilege and being able to do that particularly for this family, was really satisfying, despite the outcome. Which leads me to the next area of discussion, which is settling with defendants versus trying the case and really being very strategic about the options. So this was a case where there were a number of defendants. We were able to settle with that set of defendants before trial. So The target defendants. The target defendants. It wasn't a situation where I thought we were creating an empty chair. So for those of you listening, if you have a case where you have two defendants and one is kind of sort of at fault and the other one is like majorly at fault, it's really hard to settle with the one majorly at fault and try it against the one that's sort of at fault because the jury's going to figure it out. And they're like, why is this person there? They're going to figure out that, first of all, the person not really at fault can then point the finger at the chair that's empty to get themselves off, or the jury's going to figure out that the main defendants aren't there and you must have been paid. And what are we even doing here? Why are you picking on the little guy kind of thing? And so a strategic decision was made to settle with what I would consider to be target defendants because of- Or target adjacent defendants. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Target adjacent would be fair, but also still have a good 
theories against remaining defendants. And so we were two weeks into the trial. So we had settlements, we had money in our pocket, and then we had what are known as high-low agreements. So let's say that you've got a a case and you're not really sure what the verdict's going to be, but by the time you go to a trial, you have some sense of, number one, what the plaintiffs are going to be asking for based on non-economic damages and med mal, there's usually a cap to deal with and economic damages. So you have a range of what you think might be reasonable. And if there's risk on both sides, sometimes people say, let's have an agreement that the jury doesn't know about. And let's say the high is $10 and the low is a dollar. If the jury comes back with $12, you just get 10. But if the jury comes back with zero, you still get your one. And if the jury comes back anywhere between one and 10, that's what you get. And that way you can kind of save face because you don't really want to settle. You always believe in your case by the time you try it. I mean, it's crazy. You're like, of course, this is the best case I've ever seen in my whole life. (laughs) Oh, my God. But you do have some peace of mind. And so that's what we had with the remaining defendants. But that didn't come to pass until almost the very end of the trial. Two weeks in, right? Yeah, two weeks in. Well, and it also forecloses the idea that even if you get a good verdict, that there would be an appeal. So that is the best advantage to doing that because you reduce your risk. You're able to tell the clients no matter what, you know, win, lose, draw. A draw would be somewhere in the middle of the high-low that it will be over now. Right. And by and large, because there's one right of appeal on either side, whoever loses a trial, I mean, more often than not, appeals. And even though the vast majority of appeals are affirmed, that's still another year minimum for the clients. And And that's what's really driving settlements at all and why the culture has gotten away from trying cases on the whole. I don't feel that that's our experience necessarily, but as far as the amount of trials, that's the risk is that even when the jury verdict comes down, it's not over. I have never had a case with a high-low. I've talked about it. We flirted with it, but never had one. And man, I kind of like it. And it's really almost more for the reason, Erica, that you just noted that it's going to be over. I mean, it's going to be over. And that is wonderful for the client. It's wonderful for us. It's going to be over. So that was an interesting piece of that case that I, again, talking about learning new things, even this many years into my practice. So Liz, we were trying this case in the time of COVID. I think lots and lots of people who haven't tried a case yet since COVID has some anxiety about what's it going to look like? Is it possible? What's going to happen? What do you think about our experience? Overall, all things considered, I thought it was a good experience. There was strong mask compliance. The court made a great effort, and I thought the court staff did a great job in trying to keep people as socially distanced as possible and allowing the jurors, both during jury selection as well as once they were sworn in and impaneled, some distance and some space. So I really appreciated that. The thing that got to me, though, was that on top of all of the other stress that naturally comes from being in trial, I had a voice constantly in the back of my mind wondering, is there going to be an outbreak? Oh, yeah. I fully expected every morning getting to court to hear about a juror that had it or a practitioner that had it or something. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. But one morning I walked in and the judge mentioned to us that the neighboring county, the neighboring courthouse 
had had an outbreak. There was a, I think, a prosecutor or a public defender. I, I can't remember oh, which I one. Oh, I do remember. Her, as well as one of the court staff, both tested positive and they had to shut the courthouse down. And all I could think of was, what if we get to closing? What if we're right about to close and there's an outbreak and all of this has been for nothing? Right. In the back of my mind was constantly there every morning. And then on top of that, your own safety. You're wondering, am I going to be exposed to something? Am I going to bring something home? Especially because we were in an area of the state that is um, nationally recognized as being a hotspot. <laughs> yeah, about a 37% vaccination rate. Yeah. It was stressful, not just because I'm wondering about the job, but also I'm wondering about my own personal health. And I'm happy to say if I was exposed to anyone, looks like that vaccine's working. But that was something that weighed on me the entire time. But overall, I didn't think it was terrible. And the way they had the witness box set up, it was sort of in a little plastic, almost looked like a confessional, a little plastic confessional <laughs> where they had to sit and they were separated from everyone and the jury could still see them and they could still see out into the courtroom. But there was clearly, you know, a spit guard up. So we wouldn't be... <laughs> plexiglass. Some people call it plexiglass. Uh, I'm going to call it spit guard. <laughs> Uh, by the way, I'd always like a spit guard from anyone now yeah, forevermore. Carry one in my bag. And the way that the attorney stood, everyone wore their masks unless you were doing the questioning and people tried to stand pretty far apart. So, I mean, it is doable and it looked like the jury, they all wore masks and they seemed okay with it. The judge and the court staff all wore masks the entire time. And again, it was doable, not ideal situation, but we're not living in an ideal world right now. With the jurors having to wear masks the whole time, did you find it more difficult to kind of glean where yes. they were and what they were thinking? Yes. I think I've learned that even if someone winks at me and smiles at me, that doesn't mean they're not going to dump me. So it was, yes, it was harder to really read their expressions. But I mean, eyes can tell you a lot. And I really felt like I was reading them through their eyes. I know that there's a worry, especially in voir dire and trying to understand people. I don't know. I can't say other than the worry that we were going to walk in every day and get the uh, message that someone had COVID and we're all shut down. It didn't really change things in my mind. Sort of the other end of the spectrum that I will add to that, when our clients' parents testified, it was a very emotional testimony. It was very difficult to get through. And I found myself crying into my mask, which right. if you've ever cried into a mask, it's disgusting. <laughs> it oh, is boy. just one of the most oh. vile things you can be stuck with. And I just had a snot mask and I, I had to change my mask. <laughs> as soon as we got to a break, I had to change my mask. So crying in a mask. Don't recommend it. It's not a great experience. That is a good point. You know, as we've been going through the pandemic, and I hope this isn't too much of a non sequitur, but I keep thinking the same thing. I, last year, prior to the pandemic, read Malcolm Gladwell's, one of his more recent books, maybe his most recent. It's called Talking to Strangers. Have you guys heard of that yes. or yes. read it? My impression of the book is basically like, Everyone thinks they have these like great impressions or make these snap judgments about people when they just meet them. And they are like by and large wrong. And I keep thinking about that as we're going through the pandemic because I hear attorneys talk about like, oh, I don't want to try a case with mass because I need to see the jurors. And I don't want to take a deposition remotely because I need to be in person to, you know, like sense, you know, that impression of the witness or whatever. 
Because I always want to say, like, how arrogant of you to think that, like, you know exactly what's in that person's mind just based on looking at their facial expressions. And by and large, I feel like attorneys think that they're really good at that. And we have talked about time and time again, you know, you see a juror nodding with you. Let me tell you, y'all, that doesn't mean agreement. That might just mean recognition. Yeah, you're just a nodder. You're just a nodder. You hear words that you've recognized. They're talking about a place that you've been to that restaurant before. They think you're full of BS still. But if we put too much emphasis on things like that, I think... We can get swayed and get these impressions in our minds of like, that's a good witness or that's a bad witness. We are not these superhumans who can tell exactly what are in jurors' minds. Getting through that trial, I'm so glad you guys did it and weren't afraid to try the case because, you know, jurors had to wear a mask. It was fine. It was fine. It made no difference at all. I don't think it did. You know, my one trial experience was during COVID, so I obviously have nothing to compare it to from before that. But I had a lot of people ask, like, how was it trying a case during COVID? And it just, that wasn't really a consideration. We all had to wear masks, but it was federal court. So you can't walk around and talk to the jury like you would in a state court. You have to stand at a podium. So the judge allowed us to take our masks off at the podium when you were speaking. But other than that, we wore masks the whole time. The jury wore masks the whole time. And I don't know, maybe it's because I'm so conditioned now to masks in this pandemic, but it really wasn't a factor that I felt affected my experience. The jury's going to think what they're going to think no matter what. It's so much more beneficial to focus on your case and putting on an authentic, genuine case. If you believe in your case and you're putting on the case that you should be trying and you're being honest with yourself and trying that case and speaking to people and connecting with people, focusing on what you're doing is so much more important than trying to read the jury or interpret something. Because they could be sitting there completely uninterested, and you have no idea who that's directed to. We had the jury list about a week before trial, and so we did all of our research that we possibly could. We had this whole book, and we went through it diligently, and we tried our best to say, without knowing anything about them other than what we found, we would do, uh, this person gets an X, this person gets a check, and this person gets a question mark. The question marks were the ones you really wanted to explore questions with because you just didn't know. They looked maybe like they'd be okay. And this is such a humbling experience. Every time you pick a jury and every time you try to believe that you know who you want and what kind of jury you want. This was a nine to three in Missouri. If you get nine uh, jurors on your side, you win. So the verdict was nine to three. The three jurors that didn't agree with the defense winning were all exes in our initial review of the jurors. Now they got on because we ended up only using one peremptory strike per side because we were down to so few jurors and we didn't want to start over the next day. So they got on and we're like, oh, well, you know, we'll see what happens. And so it was so humbling. It sort of makes you want to pull your hair out and say, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about the people that are showing up here. And I can't learn what their age and gender mean with respect to my case and with respect to how they're going to digest my case and rule based on these facts. A lot of people say, oh, you know, you win your case in voir dire. Honestly, I can't let myself believe that because I have so little control over it. Like, I cannot let myself believe that. It might be true, but I can't let myself believe that. So what I took away from that is just don't beat yourself up. 
try your best to ask good questions in the voir dire to really explore, try to get people off for cause based on some fundamental beliefs that they have. But at the end of the day, you just let it go and let them believe what they hear. That's what makes our job such a moving target when we're trying cases, depending on where it is and and what's going on politically and the fact that things are so divided right now, where you stand on things and how that puts you in these tribes and camps. And it's just, let's get rid of all of it. You know, know. is it valid? Maybe not. Well, and that applies for focus groups as well. So Liz, tell us about our focus group experience with this trial. So a few weeks before the trial, we put together a packet to send to a focus group company. They took our information. And and the way you prepare a focus group is you put together both your side of the argument as well as the defendant's side of the argument so that whoever is in this focus group doesn't know which side you're for or against. And they have all of the facts and all of the arguments that you anticipate will be presented at trial. And the Focus group polls from people in a similar geographic area, not the same county, so it's not the same juror pool, but people in similar areas. And we we know that different parts of the country view litigation differently, may view facts differently. And so you hope that it is pretty representative of the jury pool that you are eventually going to get. And when we submitted our focus group information and received the results... They were off the charts. They were phenomenal. For us. For us. And it gave us so much confidence going into trial. We thought that we really knew what points to hit, how to attack their defenses, which of their defenses were strong and weak. The focus group, you don't just ask, do you side for the plaintiff or the defendant? You have a few questions at the end to try to really hone in on the issues of the case. And we thought we had a really great understanding of it. And we still lost. It gave us a lot of confidence going in, which I loved because sometimes you just need the confidence just to get her done and to feel good about it, even though I thought this case was really well prepared and the testimony and the evidence was really strong. Now, we did, I think, include some of the settling defendants because we did the focus group before we settled with some of the defendants. That could have thrown us off a little bit, but it was totally wrong. (laughs) I don't think you can really replicate the jury process. Exactly. It's definitely an open question for me going forward, the utility. I also think people are getting a lot more unpredictable. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) for real. I mean, or we're trying to predict by like saying, if you voted this way or if you like this thing, then you must also do this. Right. There's so much more variety in viewpoints these days. Every single person has such a different experience than maybe like when these focus groups were at their first inception of what the parameters were. And I just think our world now is so different. I agree. The one thing, this is not on focus groups. I'm just thinking of now about looking into jurors. I still think juror research is worthwhile and a good thing to do, not because you're really going to pinpoint which jurors are good for you, but maybe you can pinpoint which jurors are going to be bad for you, depending on what information there may be out there about them. One last topic I want to cover is... Once the jury gets in panel, because this happened to us, once the jury gets in panel, they are instructed about not communicating with any of the participants, not doing independent research, not doing this, not doing that. And I think we were in the second week of this trial. And our clients, it's a small courthouse, a very small community. People were parking next to each other. It's just, it was small. 
So our clients were walking in and a juror drove by, rolled down her window and said, I'm sorry, you all have to go through this. And our clients were parents of a child. The child was our client who had been injured. So there was a lot of testimony about the injuries and about the future of this child's prognosis of this child and that the other. And that's all she said. And she drove on and, and parked. And our client, to his great credit, came up to us and said, you know, this happened. We brought it to the, the defense attorney's attention. Of course, they thought about it for a little while and then brought it to the court's attention and the juror ended up getting dismissed and we had an alternate. And of course, at the end, she was dismissed and we have no idea how she was going to rule. But in your heart of hearts, you're like, oh, she could have been the holdout. <laughs> she could have been the holdout because, you know, nine to three, she could have been eight to four and then they'd still be back there arguing. So Especially because know. the alternate that took her spot was not for us. So I think the only thing that I took away from that is that we were hyper vigilant about where our clients were after that incident happened. Yeah. And not that we hadn't warned them ahead of time and talked to them the importance of staying away from the jury and that, you know, we're not telling you guys to be rude and we don't want you to be unfriendly or unneighborly, but this is really important. You got to stay away. And it's not our client's fault at no, all. He was blindsided. He was walking into the courtroom for all he, he didn't provoke it. Honestly, no. the way he described it, he thought someone was coming up to talk to him about his truck. Because he says, you know, I got a really distinct truck and I got people that compliment me on it all the time. He's I thought someone was just coming up to talk to me oh about my truck. <laughs> and so he was completely innocent. And afterwards we were talking. He goes, you know, should I have said? And I said, you did the right thing. You 100 percent did the right thing. It's a tough spot we're in, but I don't want you to feel like you've done anything wrong. And I hope that made him feel a little bit better. But following that incident, we were very, very careful about where we had our clients go. We told them, like, keep your heads down. We timed when we let them leave the courthouse. Basically, as soon as the jury, the last juror got through the door out of the courtroom, we were like, get out of here, go run to your car. Right. Before <laughs> they get out. Exactly. And so I think that that is one thing that I have learned from this is that it is so important to be just hyper aware because the people that are going to come up to your client and try to talk to them are never going to be the jurors, in my mind, at least. Again, I don't know how to read people, but in my mind, if you're coming up to my client to talk to them, it's because you sympathize with them or you empathize with them. And you're probably going to be one of the fighters for them once you're back in that deliberation room. And so it is really important to keep folks separate and maybe, I don't know, work it into your opening or something of just, yeah. you know, this is my client. When you're introducing your client, we're not going to be able to talk to you. We're not trying to be rude or anything. We're just trying to protect this process. Obviously, Amy, John did the right thing by bringing it to the court's attention. But it was something that as soon as I heard about it, my stomach dropped a little right. bit. A little bit. Right. Well, thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom and allowing us to regale you with some of our <laughs> COVID trial stories. We are dropping new episodes in season four every Wednesday, and we love that you are listening and downloading. We would encourage you to share with your friends. If you enjoy our episodes, please let other people know. And if you have any comments, we'd love to hear from you at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And check out other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. 
The Jury Is Out with John Simon focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice. Subscribe today.